Oh, it was fantastic. He is such a nice guy and a tremendous teacher. But the first, you know, several weeks, you know, months, I was very uh, nervous. <laughs> so you don't want to look stupid in front of the world's, you know, premier rhinoplasty surgeon. So I spent a lot of time reading, a lot of time studying. I went over the operation in my head a million times every day before and after to make sure I understood everything. And, uh, you know, from that point forward, it was just a great relationship he had. He treated me like a colleague. He treated me with the most respect. Uh, throughout the entire operation, he stopped several times and asked me, you know, do you understand why I did this? Do you understand I did this? You know, what would you do in this situation? What would you do in this situation? And he really took an extra step to make sure that I was understanding exactly what was going on in the operation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. We are in the month of July, and it's proudly brought to us by Medtronic. A huge shout out to Medtronic for enabling this enormous podcast that goes all over the world. Um, and today, I'm very excited. Our theme for this month is Rhinoplasty for Residents. And I've got a man who is just hot off finishing his fellowship with Prof. Dean Turioni, all the way from Alabama, USA, Matthew May. Matt, welcome to the Rhinoplasty Podcast, man. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So, Matt, I, I met you for the first time a couple of months ago when I came to Chicago and spent a wonderful week with you and Dean in theater. And uh, just seeing how much stuff you guys were doing was just incredible. So, we're obviously going to be a lot of residents listening to this and fellows. Let's start off. Tell us your journey of how did you end up being Dean Turiomi's fellow? Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting uh, pathway. So when I did my training, I went to residency at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And I had a pretty big passion for head and neck oncology and reconstruction. Uh, but it wasn't until my third year I had a chance to work with uh, Dr. Grant Hamilton um, who's uh, a rhinoplasty expert. And I spent um, three months with him as being his resident because we had this apprenticeship model where it was, it was you and the surgeon and you're kind of a team together. And working with Dr. Hamilton, I kind of you know, learned what rhinoplasty was and um, how you can really help people and change patients' lives. And I developed a huge passion for that. Um, the complexity, the art form, um, all the different things you can do to achieve this result was just truly fascinating. And um, there were several people, in particular patients, who had uh, GPA, and they had these terrible saddle nose deformities. And, you know, correcting those noses with him changed their lives. And so since that moment forward, I knew I wanted to do rhinoplasty. I knew I wanted to do a, a career in this. And so Dr. Hamilton did Dr. Turumi's fellowship back in the early 2000s. And so um, through him as a mentor, I had a chance to meet Dr. Torimi, uh, interview for his fellowship, and uh, fortunately for me, uh, he allowed me to be his fellow for the year. That's awesome, man. And um, so, okay, so you start with, it's, it must be quite daunting being Dean's fellow. What, what was it like for you then that year? Oh, it was fantastic. He is such a nice guy and a tremendous teacher. But the first, you know, several weeks, you know, months, I was very uh, nervous. <laughs> so you don't want to look stupid in front of the world's, you know, premier rhinoplasty surgeon. So I spent a lot of time reading, a lot of time studying. 
I went over the operation in my head a million times every day before and after to make sure I understood everything. And, uh, you know, from that point forward, it was just a great relationship he had. He treated me like a colleague. He treated me with the most respect. Uh, throughout the entire operation, he stopped several times and asked me, you know, do you understand why I did this? Do you understand to this? You know, what would you do in this situation? What would you do in this situation? And he really took an extra step to make sure that I was understanding exactly what was going on in the operation. And he did that for the entire year. And so I can't thank him enough for what he did for me. That's very cool. Man. So Matt, tell me, how many sets of gloves do you go through on average in an operation? <laughs> uh, I think we counted one day and it's at least 15 to 20. So tell Maybe me, more. Listeners, <laughs> why, why do you go through so many gloves in operation? So we photograph everything. So every graft, every view, um, some special suturing techniques. And uh, there's no one in the operating room to take photographs. So the fellow's responsibility is to take those photographs. So uh, my first pair of gloves are the sterile gloves. So then I take an extra pair, put them on top, and take several photos of various techniques, graft, and so forth. And so we do that for the entire case. And so we go through a lot of gloves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Matt, we, I want to chat to you about preservation rhinoplasty. But, but so that the listeners, we're going to hear all about it just now. But let's just talk a little bit more about um, working with Dean because, I mean, the whole world knows Dean and he's an amazing human being. Mm -hmm. and, and what he's contributed yeah. to rhinoplasty is insane. But And having a spare that week with you guys. So how long do you guys normally take to do a rhinoplasty? For a primary, we're looking, you know, probably between three to maybe five hours. Um, for revision or secondary cases, it can be anywhere from four to, you know, six or seven, depending on, you know, what, what's needed. There we go. So I think that's such a key thing for the listeners. If, if, if Dean takes five hours for a primary rhinoplasty, who are we trying to kid by trying to rush through and say, oh, take an hour, hour and a half mm -hmm. to do rhinoplasty? That, that's massive. Yeah. Okay. So how big is the incision to remove a rib from? Oh, it's this big. <laughs> <laughs> if you take the end of your pinky, you know, where your little joint is, your, your, you know, distal interglenous joint, it's the size of that. So it's 1.1 to 1.3 centimeters. It's pretty small. Yeah. And uh, how long does it take him to harvest rib? Oh, he's fast. Um, it's probably... I think the quickest we've done it is like 20 minutes, maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then, you know, if it's more challenging, I'll say average is probably like, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes usually. So, yeah. Yes. But it was, what's, what's nice is um, you, know, you can take the seventh rib. And so he prefers the seventh rib over the sixth rib. And he talks about this several times. Um, it's, a little, it's a little bit straighter of uh, a piece. You don't have to worry about the genu. Uh, it's below the diaphragm, so less likely of a chance to, you know, injure, you know, the pleura and things like that. Uh, and so when you do that, it's it's not really well hidden, kind of like a bikini line area, like a, you know, inframemory crease incision. So he makes it that small to help with patients. I see, I see. So, okay, Matt, tell me a bit about some of the, the, the publications and the research you're involved with in the year working with him. Yeah, so, um, you know, working with him, you have a lot of opportunity to do all sorts of, you know, research projects. Uh, my main research project working with him for my fellowship year was doing uh, a lip shortening procedure during rhinoplasty. 
um, this kind of started, we, we had some patients who, um, who had some complications from a previous lip lift and rhinoplasty, and it caused ne- necrosis of the columella. And so we see this problem and say, well, how can you fix this or how can you prevent this from ever happening to, to patients? And one thing what we've kind of uh, learned is that you can actually shorten the upper lip uh, during rhinoplasty without having to remove any skin. And so, because a lot of patients want, you know, rhinoplasty, they also want to shore up their lip, especially if they're an older patient. And so, to do that, um, you basically have to, you know, make your, your standard inverted V, call your Miller incision, widely dissect around the nasal base, and you can actually pull all this soft tissue up. Uh, and, you know, advance it up on your caudal um, extension graft or caudal replacement graft, and you can secure it to that graft, and you can shorten the upper lip. And so my study was looking at patients um, before and after photos using Vectra and measuring the lip length using Vectra before and after. And then we you know, did statistical analysis, and we found a significant difference in the overall lip length um, over time, up to a year, uh, the average you know, difference was around three or four millimeters, which can be a huge difference, mm-hmm. especially in an older patient. Um, and one thing that was important to us is, you know, how long does that last over time? And our longest follow-up was around a year, and further follow-up is needed, of course. Um, but we want these results to last over time. We don't want to shorten the upper lip in you know, the last six months. You want it to last longer than, you know, longer than that. So that's where, you know, where we kind of looking forward to move forward is, you know, how long does it last after a year? And, and, you know, subsequent fellows can help with that. We also do a lot of acupuncture in the office for uh, chest pain after taking rib harvest. So we're actually trying to set up a randomized controlled trial looking at um, acupuncture and helping with post-operative um, rib harvest site pain. And so that's one thing we're kind of working on this moment. That's so cool, that. So, Matt, slightly changing the direction now, you, you actually in such a responsible position now because apart from, under my understanding, apart from Dean and Sam most, nobody else in the States at the moment is this wave of preservation rhinoplasty that's coming from Europe towards the States. Hopefully it hasn't yet been widely accepted or am I incorrect in what I'm saying there? Yeah, no, you're, you're correct. Um, so when I recently took my boards, I had a chance to chat with a lot of the fellows. And there's not a lot of fellows that I met across the country who are being taught dorsal preservation. And it's, it's a little unfortunate because, you know, I'm kind of biased because I've worked with Toriumi for the past year. But I do think this is, you know, the future. It's been, you know, people in Brazil have been doing it for, you know, decades and we have the data to support it. And so um, I hope that uh, my colleagues coming out of my years and above me and below me will kind of start to adapt this type of technique because it's, it's powerful. It's a very powerful technique for rhinoplasty. Okay, so for the, the residents and the fellows out there who are listening to this podcast, if you could try and summarize what for you are the five most important things that you've learned about dorsal preservation that, that to you are key, what are they? Um, I would say number one is don't get bogged down with the terminology. There's all these different names. There's all these different types of techniques. Um, everyone, you know, there's some people who will take a, a technique and make a mild modification, name it something different. Um, the way it was taught to me is think about it as um, you have your push down or you me, have your let down and you have your push down. Um, one remove bone and one you kind of just don't remove that lot of bone in your osteotomies. 
Um, for the septal work, this is where it kind of gets tricky because there are lots of different types of techniques. And the way Dr. Tormey broke it down to me is, you know, think of it like this. You have a high strep, an intermediate strep, and a low strep. And there's different types of techniques for each one of those levels. And if you think about it in a basic sense like that, it helps you understand the technique that people are discussing. Um, uh, for example, a uh, high strep, you know, would be something like the Saban technique. You take a strip of the septal cartilage, you push everything down or let it down. An intermediate strip uh, could be similar to um, Dr. Jose Carlos Neves, his Tetris technique, or the subdosal door uh, Z-flap uh, by uh, Dr. Milos Kocevic. Um, and the Ishida could be considered an intermediate strip. Um, and then you have your low strip. That's where you're going to be your caudals. Um, you know, your, um, uh, Mario Ferez, um, has his low strep technique. Um, uh, then you have your SBQR, which is also considered a low strep technique. And so if you break it down to those types of, you know, categories, it's a little bit easier to understand, um, at least to me. So that's, that's number one is, you know, keep it simple. Um, the second thing I think is most important is knowing which technique to use and which patient. And that's probably one of the most challenging things to understand. Um, from what I've noticed this past year is that a lot of people tend to stick with one or two techniques and they try to apply it a lot of different, you know, patients. But if you can understand how each one works and which patient it works best in, it's even more powerful to you. Um, you know, for example, uh, just in my practice and Dr. Torimi's practice, we've noticed that patients who've had pretty bad nasal trauma, severe nasal deviations, and the septum is all, you know, bent and crooked and things like that. Um, the caudal is a truly powerful, unique to straighten the septum and also straighten the nose. And then also correcting if they have a dorsal hump. Um, you know, and some people may look at that patient and say, oh, I would never do dorsal preservation for that. Um, but in reality, it works perfect for that patient. And we did it several times and it worked really well. Um, you know, some patients have you know, a small hump or a larger hump and there's different types of techniques you can use for those types of situations. Um, the other thing to think about, um, what I'll say number three is the, the super tip. Um, do they have a full super tip area? Is it shallow? Um, do you want to change your super tip? Uh, deciding which technique to use based on the super tip is also important. Uh, just based on uh, my experience, um, you know, this past year, um, you know, when you do the Tetris technique, you can have, it's a very powerful way to change that super tip. So if you have someone who's got a very prominent super tip fullness that you want to kind of lower that, the Tetris is a tremendous technique to use for that. Uh, whereas if you don't, if you have a patient where you don't really want to change the super tip, then a subgrossal Z flat works very well uh, in those types of patients. So um, those are the important. Um, number four, I would say is being comfortable with your osteotomies. Um, they can be quite tricky and making sure your osteotomies are, your instruments are, are sharp, <laughs> you know, having dull instruments makes it very challenging. So I was doing, you know, for all the residents and fellows, I was doing a case, um, at one of the local hospitals and I was doing my transverse osteotomy using an osteotome that was quite dull and it just wasn't going as planned. Uh, it wasn't quite making the cuts that I wanted it to, and it started to comminute the bones here. And so luckily I noticed it right away, um, but it all comes down to the instrument being dull. And so it's very important to understand um, that having sharp instruments and using the right instrument for the right job is, is very important. 
And then I would say um, also in relation to that is when you're making your, um, you know, your lateral osteotomies, you know, connecting to your transverse, um, there are certain things you can do to prevent comminution of those nasal bones. One thing we like to use, uh, what Dr. Romy calls is a bone pick. It looks like an ice pick. And I think uh, Marina Medical sells it. It's very sharp. It, uh, I think it's called a circus bone drill, actually, what is, is the true name. But you can use that instrument to etch the bone, kind of like a little groove uh, where you want to go. And then that can sit or seat your osteotome uh, so it won't shift in and out of your groove. And it kind of keeps you in line. Uh, when you're starting out, I think that's very, very important to use, or at least try to use something to etch where you want your osteotomies to go, especially here, so that you're not kind of moving up and down or shifting in any way, and that can cause combination of the bone. Um, so I would say that's, you know, four and five. That's, you know, quite important. So, guys, just for the listeners, um, I just threw those questions out at Matt. He never had time to prepare, and then he gives you your first five things of preservation rhinoplasty. That's it, Bree. That's why you uh, were Dean's fellow. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> now, Matt, tell me, uh, how do you manage your family life when you're working like this? I mean, you've got a little little kid and married, um, and you've just set up your own private practice about to start. Um, give us some tips about how to survive uh, on that side of things. Yeah, your your family is very important. Um, you know, I don't have to tell you this, but everyone knows this, but you – you really have to set time to help your family because you wouldn't be where you are without them. And so one thing that worked with our family is uh, certain you know days on the weekends where I wasn't working, you have to set that aside for family time. You know, get off your phone, get off writing you know a paper or whatever you're doing and go do something. Uh, that's what we did in Chicago for the year. We found a museum. We went to the park. Uh, we went on bike rides, you know. And you just set that time aside and say, I'm going to spend this time with my family doing this, and I can't allow any distractions. And then you set time for, okay, I'm going to work at this time. So I'm going to work on this paper from you know, 6 a.m. to 9.30 a.m., and the rest of the day is for family. And that's what we did, and I think it worked pretty well. Um, you know, it's harder to do that sometimes in residency, but, you know, fellowship, sometimes you have a little more time than as a resident. And so that's what we did. That's what worked for us. And so um, I'll continue to do that, in, you know, going forward. That's cool. So, Matt, tell me, you got to travel a little bit in this year of being a fellow as well. Um, tell us a little bit about where you went and why you went there. Yes. Yeah, so back in October, um, we went to Sao Paulo, Brazil with Dr. Torimi, and we did a live surgery there at the, uh, the rhinoplasty meeting with Mario Ferrara. And uh, it was a tremendous experience. It was a rhino anatomy course with cadavers. And there were surgeons from all over the world um, at this conference. I, I want to say there was at least, I don't remember exactly how many, but hundreds of people all this meeting wanting to learn rhinoplasty. And so we got to go to the local hospital, do a live surgery, broadcasted it in front of everyone at the conference. And it was just a truly remarkable experience. I got to meet so many wonderful people. Um, who were just true leaders in the field and, uh, you know, mentors to me. And so um, I got to meet Dr. Jose Carlos Neves there, and um, we shared a cab uh, together with Dr. Tori. I mean, so it, it's just a cool thing to meet all these different people and learn how they do different things. Um, and then, let's see, back in March, I think it was March, uh, 
Dr. Tori May, Dr. Davis, and Dr. Farrars uh, went to Miami to do a Tours of Preservation cadaver course. And I got to go with him and be his assistant and uh, help kind of set up uh, cadavers and answer questions and help anyone who may need help during that uh, course as well. And uh, his surgical tech, uh, Keisha, um, got to go on both those trips. And she's been with him for over 20 years, and she is just an amazing person. She knows everything about rhinoplasty, and uh, she is a true you know, uh, mentor to the fellows as well. Uh, and so I had to give a shout out to her. No, I agree with you. She's amazing. Eh? I was very happy that she yeah. didn't kick me out of the theater when I came <laughs> to visit. <laughs> yeah, so, course. Matt, if you think about it, the difference from when you went to the Brazilian course in October last year compared to going to Florida in March, what, six months later, how much had you learned in those six months? Probably double what I knew. Um, you know, it's a steep learning curve. Uh, being his fellow, you know, I had, I, my goal was to read his entire run up. So I read his, his first rhinoplasty book prior to doing the fellowship. And my goal uh, was to go through his structural rhinoplasty book at all thousand pages or so, at least twice. And it took me about three months to do it the second time. So I did it once before doing fellowship. And then I did it again uh, when starting fellowship. And so it took about three or four months to kind of finish that. Um, and so I finished it right around the time we went to the Brazil uh, meeting. Um, but then after that, I started trying to focus on learning all things dorsal preservation. So trying to read every paper there was about dorsal preservation. And so um, I think it really helped a lot um, having that backbone of structure and then learning the dorsal preservation. Uh, and I would say I'd probably learned twice as much as what I knew before. Wow. That's fantastic. Yes. Um, so what are some of your hopes and dreams over the next while? Yeah. So my goal is, you know, I want to have a very strong rhinoplasty practice. I, I love rhinoplasty. It's a, a true passion of mine. And, uh, I want to do a lot of rhinoplasty cases and I want to, you know, meet all these people from all over the world and do all these meetings. I, I love your podcast. You know, it's a tremendous amount of, uh, learning from you when you came to visit. And so I, I want to visit people you know, all over the world too. Um, you, know, you can learn something from everyone. And so I want to do that the next you know five years or so. Um, but I want to set up my practice. I want to do a lot of dorsal preservation, uh, a lot of structure. And uh, I eventually will start doing more revision cases. I'm going to be a little selective at first because uh, revisions are hard. They're very challenging and things can go bad very quickly. Uh, so I want to get you know comfortable uh, doing some primaries and then kind of work trans work my way into doing more revisions. But my goal as being a previous Tori Me Fellow is to be a revision expert as well, mm -hmm. and being the person that people can refer patients to um, to help those problems because you know there are patients who have some pretty bad problems out there, mm -hmm. and there's got to be people who can fix it, mm -hmm. you know. And there's a lot of complicated issues. Um, that I got to see as a fellow, uh, a patient who just, you know, tons of scar tissue, you know, damaged noses and uh, from infections or, how, you know, trauma, whatever it may be. And there's got to be people who can do that for them. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be a person, at least in my region of the world or the country, um, where I can help those people. Sure. 
Matt, you kind of, I, I don't often stop talking, but uh, I'm really impressed <laughs> with what you said. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. You know, it was, it was only hanging out with you uh, and Dean in Chicago. But listening to you speak, it's, it's, it's inspiring at the same time. So I want to I wanna maybe um, end it off with this. Is so for, for people who are in residency at the moment, be that in, in otolaryngology or plastic surgery or whatever they're, they're busy with, um, what would your advice be to them if they, they want to pursue this career in rhinoplasty? I would say do it and don't look back. Um, it's rhinoplasty. When I first started learning about rhinoplasty, it, it was hard because it's a different language. It, it truly is a different language than anything else you'll learn. You know, when you have, when you have all these terms like an auto spreader versus a spreader flap versus you know, vertical dome division versus transdomal sutures versus Gruber suture. I mean, there's all these different terminology that's very confusing. Um, so it can turn people away. But I would say don't don't let the terminology, don't let the, you know, the confusion, you know, pull you away from that. You know, what you have to understand is you have a nose and you have to know what you want to make out of it. And so knowing what types of techniques to get to that result is most important. And so I, I would just recommend, you know, don't get bogged down in all these words and all these terminologies. And of course, it's important to learn, but you'll learn that as you go. Learn the concepts, the big concepts, you know, and start small and work your way up. So what is, you know, the tripod concept? Do you fully understand you know, how the tripod works? Because that's extremely important. And then once you understand that, then you can kind of work your way to more complicated things. Um, but I would say, you know, for sure, just pursue it and don't look back because you'll, you'll love it. I, I've met so many people who, who love rhinoplasty. They truly do. And, uh, you know, if you have any kind of inclination to want to pursue this, then, then I, I would do it. And if you're going to pursue for residency, you're looking for a fellowship. Um, I, we've had a lot of people come visit us over the last year. And one thing that people keep telling us is I didn't get a lot of rhinoplasty experience in my fellowship. It's hard. It can be hard to go back and get those experiences um, of rhinoplasty experience after you graduate. So if you're truly interested in rhinoplasty and you want a strong rhinoplasty practice in the future, I would do a fellowship that's very strong in rhinoplasty because it's hard to go back and learn those things. You can do it, but it's just harder. And so that's what was, you know, uh, discussed with me when I was choosing fellowship. And that's kind of the, the advice that Dr. Hamilton gave me um, is if you want to do rhinoplasty and you want to be good at rhinoplasty, do a fellowship that's very strong at rhinoplasty. Oh, that's awesome, man. Matt, you know, I, I'm so yeah. proud of, of you, man. And uh, there's so many other guys out there. We just wish you the best of luck as you start on this adventure of private practice and we're excited to see what your contribution is going to be to rhinoplasty in the decades that lie ahead. I think um, it's uh, there's a greater purpose behind you and being under Dean and learning from from him that uh, I'm excited to see where your career is going to go. So I want to, on behalf of all the listeners, say good luck, eh? really good luck to you. And I hope it goes very well. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you know, it was a tremendous experience meeting you when you came and visited us and you're just a you know, tremendous guy. And so, uh, you know, fellowship to me was such a remarkable experience, uh, that you can't put into words a lot of times and the people that you meet will stick with you forever. And so 
I just want to thank you for, you know, your mentorship to me just in that week we were there. I mean, there's a couple of days where, we, you know, we went over types of, you know, scenarios like what if a board examiner asked you this question or what about this question yeah. or what do you think about this? And those things stick with you. You know, I, I thought about that before my exam, the things, you know, the tips you gave me. That's cool. And so, um, you know, I appreciate that. And so I want to thank you for your mentorship as well. Awesome, man. And then the last thank you, I guess, is to all the listeners from around the world. Guys, thanks for coming back every week to listen to um, the Rhinoplasty podcast. We're nearing the end of season two. A big shout out again to Medtronic for enabling this month. Thank you so much. Um, I don't even have to tell you Medtronic is they're amazing, everything they do. So thanks, guys. And uh, we'll chat to you guys all again next week when we have our next visitor and speaker. Um, you're going to like next week's speaker as well. I can guarantee you that, but just wait until he comes on the air. So thank you again, once again, and Matt, uh, all the best for you that side. Thank you very much.